Black Talk Radio. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you stars our father's children. When snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is September 30th, 2015. We have a special guest joining us tonight to provide an analysis on the historic Justice is Not for Sale Act submitted submitted by U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders on September 18th. Our guest is Professor Nakima Levy-Pounds, the abolitionist attorney, an award-winning professor of law, civil rights attorney, and a nationally recognized expert on a range of civil rights and social justice issues at the intersections of race, public policy, economic justice, public education, juvenile justice, and the criminal justice system. Professor Levy Pounds also serves as a consultant to various civil rights groups, business entities, public policy organizations, academic institutions, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations. She also serves as the chair of the Minnesota State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and is the co-chair of Everybody In, a regional collaboration of over 40 stakeholders across different sectors working to close the racial unemployment gaps in the region by 2020. She is active in the local community, serving on the boards of the Minneapolis Foundation, Catholic Charities, the African American Museum, and Growth and Justice. She is also the author of numerous scholarly articles and essays on structural and systemic issues that impact poor communities of color. She is one of the leading voices in Black Lives Matter, Minneapolis, and in May of 2015 was elected as president of the Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP. Also tonight, we've helped expose this crime, and today we report a victory. Whole Foods has announced it will stop using their prison labor program after multiple protests around the country and a barrage of negative media coverage from national news outlets forced them to this position. In a constant miscarriage of justice in 2014, there were over 700,993 700, arrests for marijuana in the United States. That's one every 45 seconds. That's also 7,000 more than last year, with nearly 90% of those arrests for simple possession. This week, it was announced that Oregon will be expunging the old records of marijuana offenders, along with their new legalization plan. It's a tricky deal, and we'll tell you how. 
members of the Florida Republican Party conducted a secret meeting to lay out a plan to unseat Congresswoman Corrine Brown through redistricting. The plan, spearheaded by Florida State Representative Janet Atkins, would pack inmates slash felons who are ineligible to vote into the 5th Congressional District. But as lawmakers and GOP activists in the meeting were secretly plotting against Brown, they were also secretly being recorded. We'll play it for you tonight. Today on New Abolitionist Radio, we examine the state that inspired our investigations and studies, a state that has been charged with gross constitutional violations and unlawful acts by its courts, governing bodies, and police departments, where the extortion is so blatant that the city asked the police to increase revenues and 33,000 outstanding arrest warrants or an astonishing 26 per resident are issued in one city alone a state proven to be racist and discriminatory up to and including murdering unarmed civilians in cold blood like Mike Brown and Kajami Powell, the state which brought out National Guards, tanks, and tear gas on civilians protesting their violated rights as human beings and American citizens, the state which was so egregious that it started a series of national movements today. We take it home and show you that this state is truly represented by the uncovered nightmares of a key city. Missouri is Ferguson. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Reginald Reggie Griffin, 53, who was sentenced to death for the July 12, 1983 stabbing of James Bowsley in a yard at the Moberly Correctional Center, then known as the Missouri Training Center for Men. In August 2011, the Missouri Supreme Court vacated Griffin's conviction after finding the state had withheld evidence related to another prisoner who was likely involved in the murder. The charges were dropped in October 2013 after prosecutors indicated that they did not have sufficient evidence to convict him. Our abolitionist in profile is Frederick Starr, Jr., 1826 to 1867. You can expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find our podcast at newabolitionistsradio.blogspot.com and we invite you to join the conversation by calling us at one. 1- 641-715-3660, extension 549-032-POUND. Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How you doing, Brother Johanan? Uh, Johanan is not with us. Oh, so okay. Uh, maybe Johanan ran in some... Uh, problems we know that he's been working a uh hectic job lately so that could be it how you doing scotty um i don't know man I, I, nothing personal against you but i wish people would quit asking me that man you know why because we live behind enemy lines and so that's you know how would anybody be fair behind enemy lines but i know you know we program to give uh greetings and it is good to speak with you again max and uh with the i say what has your week been like uh, busy. <laughs> I hear that, brother. Same here, man. Yeah, lots to talk about, lots of radio to be produced and podcast and just the whole mission of the Black Talk Media Project and helping people um, who want to get a voice out there through mass media, social media, uh, help them be able to do that. So that's why we was founded since 2008. And it's always an uphill battle, man. So every day, you know, my days are filled. 
Yeah, uphill battle is exactly right, brother. Um, struggling over here too. I was just finding out today that I'm having some family issues with my great aunt and great uncle, the one I've told you about, who was raised by slaves, uh, former slaves. And uh, some years ago, they had their uh, all of their life savings stolen, and now they're facing homelessness. And I'm trying to figure out how I can get there to help them. Yeah, it's rough, man. Homelessness is a big issue here in the United States, although they want to pretend like it isn't. Um, I think if they're now talking to Cuba, ask Cuba, how have they been able to deal with all this homelessness, even though you've had and you have this economic blockade against them? And, you know, they still have been able to eliminate homelessness and provide them with some uh, top notch health care. So well, they're in their 90s, and uh, the main reason they're unable to manage things is because of medication. Medication has gotten so high at their age. They take so much medication, and it literally just takes up all of their income. Yeah, did you see that story, speaking of medication, about, I don't know if it has to do with treating HIV, treating AIDS, but uh, this uh, doctor was blasted all over social media and by celebrities and everything because he had, like, just put an outrageous profit margin on this drug to treat, you know, this this affliction that afflicts so many people, this medical uh, breakthrough. And, yeah, man, and then he dropped it back down. But, I mean, yeah, man, medication, all of the breakthroughs that have been made um, by anyone in the United States or its medical system, man, it, it's involved taxpayers' money. And so, but how is it that then these, you know, corporate pharmaceutical companies can then take take what should be patent in the people's name and take that and then, you know, build on top of that, that um, information and um, and then just make hugely insane profits off of that, pricing people out of medicine. So that's that capitalist portion of medicine, and so you know it, it hasn't worked out well. It's it's right, right with corruption. I'm sorry to hear your family members going through that. Yeah, you know, if you ask me, because I'm a simple person, I would look at things like that as attempted murder, because that's what you're doing. You're trying to kill people, just kill them all, <laughs> just and anybody that can afford it can get it, and those that can't are dying. Yeah, I am looking forward to uh, speaking to our guest tonight. Uh, it's been a while since we spoke to Sister Nakima uh, Levy Pounds, and because I haven't been seeing any coverage. Earlier, I was, you know, talking about media production. I haven't seen any corporate media production of coverage of the uh, Justice Is Not For Sale Act 2015 introduced uh, by Senator Sanders. And what is the other? Man's name that introduces a representative out of Texas. Uh, out of Arizona, I believe it was, and I'm pulling up his name now. Yeah, if you could share that, because, you know, um, he does. Tenral Grivalba. Yeah, so he, he does need to be recognized, because he's introduced it through the House. Bernie Sanders introduced the Senate version. And so, um, yeah, people need to be lobbying for those bills to be passed. Uh, that's in my analysis, but we're going to speak to, you know, uh, Dr. Levy Pounds about that. Uh, what's her uh, take on it? But the main, what I'm saying is the mainstream media, I haven't seen any panels. I don't watch it 24-7, uh, but I haven't even seen any clips on the Internet of anyone, you know, with expertise or education or doctorates or in the legal field 
who have been debating the merits of this bill. You know, just, you know, going over the summary and whatnot and what kind of impact do you think this would have on on uh, private prisons and jails throughout the United States, but it also makes uh, for the changes. And I do believe we have her joining us, uh, area code 612. Hello. Greetings and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio again, uh, Professor Pounds, Levy Pounds. Thank you for being here with us again. Thank you for having me. Uh, we was looking forward to it. You know, you fired us up last time you was here. And since then, things have changed for you. Uh, you know, you're the president of the Minneapolis uh, NAACP now. And uh, I've seen you've been in quite, uh, like your schedule has increased quite a bit out there trying to make things happen. And we really were interested in your analysis on this historical uh, document, this legislation being proposed, the Justice is Not for Sale Act uh, by Bernie Sanders and uh, also by, as Scotty just pointed out, Congressman Raul Grijalva of uh, Arizona. Well, number one, thank you for having me on the show. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Kind of going in and out a little bit, but we can hear you. Okay, great. So thanks for having me. It's a privilege always and an honor to be on with you guys talking about these justice issues. You said that last night, I I mean, last time I was on the show, I fired you guys up. Well, you fired me up to um, be recommitted to addressing the inequities within our criminal justice system and remembering that I am an attorney abolitionist. And so in Minnesota, we have doubled down on our efforts to try to address some of the inequities within the system. One of the things that we just did last spring was to get um, two ordinances repealed by our Minneapolis City Council. And one was for spitting and one was for lurking mm. uh, because those two ordinances were being used as a pretext to criminalize young African-Americans in the city of Minneapolis. So now those laws are no longer on the books. So we'll be pushing for an overhaul of our um, probation system. I just talked to the governor last week about that when he met with the presidents of the various NAACP chapters in our state and also pushing for an ombudsman within our criminal justice system. And we will be pushing our city council to look at other low-level ordinances that are creating a disproportionate impact on African-Americans and other people of color. So I want to thank you guys for just reigniting that fire in me and reminding me that I have a responsibility to push against the status quo and to be relentless in the pursuit of justice. Uh, I also want to commend you all in uh, pushing Bernie Sanders' camp to put forward that justice is not for sale act. I am really excited about what this act can do and how it can ease the burden um, on people who are incarcerated as well as their families and hopefully shift the paradigm within our criminal justice system where we're not continually selling out to for-profit um, prison industries and we're focusing more on what's in the best interest of the people. Amen to that. And uh, congratulations on your victories in defeating some black codes circa uh, 21st century, because that's literally what they are, is black codes all over again, criminalizing black life. Uh, we've been finding 
so many discrepancies in our investigation state by state over the past uh, year uh, in the America is Ferguson series. And uh, it's just outrageous. And I'm glad we have someone like you out in front uh, making a difference in this world right now. And remembering that there is not just the either or fallacy of reform, no reform. Sometimes when something is bad, you can abolish it. You don't need to continue doing that. You know, you don't have to reform everything. So the word abolition being out in the air right now is a very good thing because it points not only to the problem, but also to a reasonable solution. Absolutely. And I do think uh, pushing us more towards abolition will help us land closer to where we want to go. Because if we're just saying reform, reforms we know sometimes are just tweaks to an already broken and flawed system. Sometimes you need to dismantle it. Sometimes you need to completely overhaul it in order to get to the system that we think is just and fair. And we know that right now the way that our system functions is not just, it's not fair. We're incarcerating way too many people and we're breaking up families just as they did during the days of slavery where at any given time, time an African-American man, woman, or child could be sold on the auction block, never to see their family again. Well, within our criminal justice system, once someone winds up in the system, they're at risk of not having contact with their families again or being separated with, from them for very long periods of time. And we know that that impacts the entire African-American community as well as families, And there's also an impact on children when they're separated from their loved ones. Yes, every aspect of our society is affected by this. This is why I've dedicated my life to this cause, because I feel like this is the lead domino. Should we be able to knock down, beginning with the private prisons, uh, this type of prison for profit, justice for sale, policing for profit, courts for profit, which really are centered around the capitalism that was uh, initiated by turning prisons into a private industry, I think that we can solve a lot of our major problems. Uh, All the things that we look at really are symptoms coming from a single source. And that single source is, as Brian Stevenson said, uh, slavery all over again. It was never abolished. It was simply streamlined. Absolutely. And we've talked on this show before about the language of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which never really abolished slavery. It opened the door to a new form of slavery through the criminal justice system. And we've seen the perpetuation of slavery um, out um, our states around this country where, you know, the black folks have been in place um, since the end of slavery. And these are laws that have been established to criminalize standard conduct by African-Americans. And it's really unfortunate, and I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of the connection between our current criminal justice system and the institution of slavery. So when we look at this Justice is Not for Sale Act, I want to point out um, the fact that it talks about how we um, are an incarceration nation. The fact that nearly um, 800 of every 100,000 people are incarcerated in the United States or somehow caught up in the system. Um, and that makes us number one in the world in terms of our rate of incarceration. So we have 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prisoners. Uh, that is startling when you think about it. And then we spend um, over $55 billion a year 
on our criminal justice system when we really could be investing in jobs, not jails, when we can be building up families and communities, and we're investing in a system that is ir- 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 irretrievably broken, um, which I think is problematic. So we have um, more than 2.3 million people currently incarcerated um, in the United States, not to mention um, immigrants who are detained, over 30,000 um, folks who are detained um, through Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, we also know that um, when politicians talk about um, criminal justice, a lot of times their focus is on getting tough on crime. And that's the rhetoric that they use get the American people buy into the criminal justice system, even though we know that it's causing harm, primarily to people of color. Because if you look at our current system, roughly 40% of those who are incarcerated or, or connected to the system are African-American, even though we're only 13% of the U.S. population. Additionally, roughly 60% of prisoners live at or below the poverty line prior to their incarceration. So these are systems that have been built on the backs of poor black and brown bodies. And we have to understand that it's not just about law and order. It's not just about this rhetoric of getting tough on crime, but someone is actually the number of subconference from one to four. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what caused that. Uh, please continue. Oh, okay. So someone is actually profiting um, off of the backs of, of black and brown bodies. So we have folks who are running these uh, for-profit prisons who are actually um, making money off of the backs of the poor. They're making a major profit when they're able to get money from the federal government to operate these private prisons. Um, often when people are incarcerated, Within these private prisons, they have um, poor nutrition because the the delivery of food services is is often scant um, and it's um, inadequate in terms of what the human body needs to be healthy. And they have a poor delivery of healthcare services. So we know that in the African-American community, for example, we suffer um, from diabetes and high blood pressure at disproportionate rates. So a lot of our men and women who are incarcerated have these illnesses, but the food that's being served within these um, private prisons does not often accommodate the health needs of inmates. Neither um, does the delivery of health services, where they may not even see a doctor enough, they may not get adequate access to medication. And because this is happening behind closed doors, most of the American public is unaware of how these people are being and to make matters worse, private prisons have an incentive to cut down off on their bottom line, you know, to make sure that they're bringing in a lot more than they spend. So that means that they might cut corners in terms of what prisoners actually have access to. And if you have, if you don't have enough oversight of how these private prisons are being run, that means that prisoners are going to continue to get short in of the stick and be treated like second and third class citizens um, in their own country. Uh, Dr. Levy Pounds, this is Scotty. Uh, again, it's good to speak to you. Thank you for joining us again here on New Abolitionist Radio. Um, what What do you think about in terms of talking about oversight? The uh, bill seems to address 
of the oversight of telecommunication corporations and banks uh, who provide services for like, you know, if a, a prisoner's family member wants to leave some money for him so that he can buy a comp commissary. Well, often financial corporations, you know, make a fee off of those transactions as well as phone calls. Uh, Max can tell you about the, you know, high of. Uh, um, cost of talking to uh, his sons who are in prison uh, for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and, and you know, just outrageous rates. And the bill um, eliminates what I guess you would call price gouging, or at least it seeks to eliminate uh, price gouging of, vic of the uh, prisoners and their families. Because, I mean, if families want to stay in touch with, you know, which would be good for rehabilitation, it shouldn't cost them that much money to make a regular phone call. You know, we talk to people all over the globe using Skype or using other. Why does it have to cost so much money? You know, why aren't they keeping up with technology? Obviously for a profit. It's not really costing them that much to make place those calls. But what are your thoughts on that part of the bill? So section six and seven of the bill focuses on increasing oversight um, of those companies that charge inmates for their banking fees and their telephone calls. There has not been um, adequate regulation of those consumers, um, financial industries, or the telecommunications industry. I know that there's a movement right now called Prison Phone Justice that is looking at reducing the exorbitant rate of prison phone calls because so often our families have to choose between putting food on the table and accepting a call from someone who's incarcerated. And I just think that that's a travesty of justice. It could cost $13, $14, $15 an hour just to talk to someone who's in prison for a few minutes on the phone. That just does not make very much sense at all. Um, and so this bill would um, provide better oversight of the um, banking industry, the um, telephone companies that are charging these high rates and would prevent them from engaging in unfair practices and charging those high fees. Now, I would like to see um, a lot of specificity in terms of how they're going to do that. Because a lot of these companies, especially the telephone companies, are able to get away with charging these high fees because they give kickbacks to the states uh, for allowing them to come in and um, and operate their telephone companies within the prison system. And so the, the states have an incentive to allow these high fees to be charged because they get money on the back end. And again, what they're really doing is taxing poor families that cannot afford to pay the um, high cost of these phone calls. So there needs to be a regulation. There also needs to be regulation when somebody wants to send money to someone who's incarcerated. Why should you have to pay tons of money to be able to send just a little bit of something to a loved one who's incarcerated? They need to make sure that these companies are not engaging in predatory practices um, of poor people. So I'm glad that the bill is going to uh, attempt to provide oversight of these companies. We also need to begin with both companies because there are some companies out there uh, that um, operate, um, uh, you know, uh, telephone calls within prisons that are actually connected to larger corporations. Corporations that where we might spend our money as consumers. Like so JP is JP Morgan. Yes. Yeah. 
JP Morgan Chase, and there are several other companies along those lines that profit off of the backs of inmates, but that are hidden because of the names that they use. So that's a role that we can play in beginning to expose these companies, exposing their leaders, and saying, we're not going to keep buying your product. We're not going to keep um, purchasing goods from you, doing business with you, if you are going to profit off of the backs of the poor people who are incarcerated in their family members. Well, uh, Scotty was saying earlier that uh, I could attest to it, and it's much more insidious, I think, than what we're uh, usually aware of. It was costing me $15 for a 10-minute 10 10 uh, phone call. That's what he was paying, actually, my son. And uh, he was working in the prisons uh, for, I believe it was 53 cents an hour, and they docked his pay because he sent some Zeppelins that he had baked to his brother, and they considered that uh, theft. So they docked half his month's pay, and the other half he used to call me and tell me what was going on. But also with these video conferencing things that are going on, and many of them are no-bid contracts, they allow the human trafficking aspect of this, what we're dealing with, to come into play and become even more profitable by, for instance, moving prisoners from Hawaii to Arizona in a prison that only houses Hawaiians, and then telling the family members back in Hawaii, if you want to visit your family members, then you need to use this video service or these phone calls. And it's a monopoly that is really just just tearing these families apart financially. And at the same time, simply because it's the same company in another state, allowing these companies to use human trafficking. Yes. Yeah, that to me is a travesty. Um, even the fact that within our federal system that inmates can be moved around you know, as far away as Hawaii, if the federal government decides that that's where they need to be housed. So I think that we need to look at that and try our best to keep people who are incarcerated in the states in which their families reside, because that's going to help with people being able to keep a connection with their family members. If they can actually visit them, they're in the same state. It'll also help when they when they try to reintegrate back into society because they've kept the connection with their family and their loved ones. Instead, what we have, as you mentioned, is people being moved around all around the country um, with no regard for their connection to their loved ones. And then you have these companies coming in, capitalizing off of what this system is structured, forcing people to pay these high rates just to be able to have contact with their loved ones, which, again, is completely unacceptable. Indeed. Uh what I'd like to do at this moment is uh, we're reaching the half hour point. I want to take a quick station identification break. And when I come back, I want to ask you another question about the Justice is Not Sale Act. You're listening to me, Abolition. Yes, maybe. Okay, seems like we are having some technical difficulties. You're tuned in to New Abolitionist Radio right here on Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on the other side. Are t- 
tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Max, are you there? Hey, I'm sorry about that. That was Johanan calling in uh, to me. He's online now and uh, interrupting the call. I'm sorry about that. Okay. All right. Uh, Professor, what I'd like to ask you about is Section 3, which I thought was uh, really courageous to reach for that short term of a goal. And it says that they will bar the federal government from contracting with private entities to provide and or operate prisons and detention facilities within two years. And then they go on further, talk about how they'll give them a year of an extension if they need more time. And I, I must admit, and we spoke about this last week, that it doesn't actually free anybody, but it does end the private prison connection with the government. And then they have to take these people and put them into uh, federal facilities. And when that process happens, a lot of things will be uncovered, I believe. But your thoughts on it? I think that that provision of the bill is excellent. Um, I think it's also courageous, as you said, because that's such a short window of time to shift from private prisons having control to relinquishing control back to the federal government for operating prisons and having control of prisons. I think that that's one of the most groundbreaking parts of the bill that definitely needs to be implemented. I know that that's probably where one of the greatest fights is going to happen um, if this bill continues to move forward because of how much money these private correctional facilities spend lobbying the federal government to get what they want. You know, they work through an organization called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that's notorious for pushing through things like the three strikes law and um, and other um, draconian uh, laws that impact people within the criminal justice system because they benefit from the more people who are incarcerated. And so they spend tens of millions of dollars aggressively lobbying to keep things the way that they are or to make conditions worse for those who come into contact with the criminal justice system. And they have billions upon billions of dollars um, that their stock is worth. So we know that they're going to fight tooth and nails to try to keep control um, over these private facilities and not allow the federal government to take charge. But again, I think that that is one of the most important aspects of the bill. I believe that that's a paradigm shift within the way that our federal system operates. And I would love to see that come to fruition. Indeed, that makes all of us that we think that is the key part of it, which really is abolition. Uh, you're abolishing these private prisons from the United States of America. I would hope that even further than that, at one point, we would find them uh, liable for the crimes that are occurring because lawsuits have been hitting them continuously over and over again. And even at this point, people are uh, applying racketeering charges to these private prisons. So we know how corrupt they are and we know exactly how involved they are in our government, deeply involved. So that's just a wish list of mine. And the other one that I want to get your uh, analysis on was the immigrants uh, where they detain 34,000 and it's mandated it's section 8 and the requirement that ICE detain 34,000 immigrants. 
Uh, I'll read that one real quickly so our listeners know what it is. The detention quota imposed on ICE is an aberration in law enforcement. No other federal or local law enforcement agency detains individuals based upon a daily quota. The federal government would save $1.4 billion annually by eliminating the daily bed quota and giving ICE the discretion to utilize more humane and effective alternatives to detention, ATDs, for immigrants immigrants identified as low risk. I um, also appreciate that portion of the bill. It doesn't make any sense to impose a quota um, on ICE to have a certain number of beds filled by immigrants. We know that immigrants are human beings, that they deserve to be treated with dignity, and they shouldn't be forced to um, experience incarceration simply because they are trying to get their piece of the American pie, you know, so to speak. We know that a lot of the conditions within these detention facilities are horrible conditions, that people are treated in an inhumane fashion, and there's simply no reason to maintain these types of facilities. So I like the fact that they're pushing to end the detention quota imposed on ICE, and they need to put in place more humane practices that take into account um, the, um, the conditions of these facilities that ensure that they're not locking up more people than they need to, and that they're thinking about alternatives to detention. Maybe some people need to do community service. Maybe they need to be held in some other facility uh, or released, you know, back to their home countries in a timely manner or allowed to stay in this country. There are lots of different ways that you can deal with the issue. And then the bottom line is, at the end of the day, if you are not Native American, you are an immigrant in this country. Because of the fact that we... You know, have people who came here that took land that did not belong to them, that set up shop in this country. Um, we've never made amends um, for the conduct of, of some of our ancestors, and not necessarily African Americans, but um, thinking about the foundation upon which this country was built, and really the fact that we're all immigrants. So why are we treating certain people differently, particularly those from um, Spanish-speaking countries? Because I would guess that most of the people who are detained in these ice facilities aren't coming from places like Canada and Europe. You know, they're African immigrants, they're Latinos, folks that we think are undesirables in this country. And that, to me, is problematic because that's a racial, ethnic dynamic that often is not discussed um, in the context of immigration. Yeah, it's pretty nasty when you have, you're, you're giving Border Patrol orders to make sure there's always 34,000 people in these beds. And if you don't have 34,000, then the uh, company that runs these uh, detention facilities can sue the state for lost uh, income. They <laughs> don't even crazy. have to sue them. I mean, if it's like the contracts. To... I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say the contracts that the Correction Corporation of America um has with just for one example the state of louisiana i mean they don't even have to correction corporation cca doesn't have to sue they just gonna get paid their money for empty quote-unquote beds so yeah that's outrageous yeah i mean there's no reforming that you have to abolish that corrupt um roots 
cause. I mean, like you was mentioning earlier, Alec, and they're pushing for this mass incarceration legislation, for a lack of a better term. Um, and these are made up of corporations, either private prison corporations as well as the corporations like one. Our stories will focus on um, one restaurant that is among many that uses prison slave labor. So, I mean, it's not just the CCA or the GEO group. It's all these other little side corporations. And I think you mentioned also, you know, the health care, the poor health care. Those, again, are corporations that lobby. You know, through through, um, you know, uh, what we call the private prison lobby. So I think this is a big step. And just a, if you abolish that, then you abolish a source of a lot of this legislation that's uh, affecting non-white people disproportionately and putting them what I call modern slavery. Right. No, you absolutely right. And I also to that point, I like Section nine of the bill as well, which will require ICE to improve the monitoring of detention facilities. And they're, they're calling for an annual independent audit by a third-party auditor to make sure that the conditions are humane uh, within these facilities, that there are routine inspections and unannounced inspections that occur. If you don't have someone watching the watchers, then we already know that it's going to be detrimental to the people who are locked inside of these facilities. And that, to me, just again, it's a travesty of justice when we're treating people like they're trash that blew in off the streets and not respecting the dignity, even of those who are incarcerated, or shall I say, especially of those who are incarcerated. Amen. And, you know, when I hear about things like quotas, I see them across the board. You have the quotas for the immigrants. You have the quotas in the contract forms for the prisons to be uh, 80 to 100 percent occupied for 25 years. And now we're hearing uh, these bombshells coming out of New York City and other cities having police quotas where your police have to go out and fill these quotas of arrests. So th these quotas uh, seem to be a major problem across the board. Absolutely. They incentivize law enforcement to operate a certain type of way because a lot of these municipalities are dependent upon the revenue from these quotas to keep to stay in business. This is a business. Even though it's sold to us as though it's focused on law and order, maintaining public safety, being tough on crime, we can't forget about the business side of the criminal justice system, which drives a lot of the decisions that end up taking place. You know, I also agree with you, Section 9. And the last section I want to ask you about is one that really should almost bring you to tears just hearing about it because it puts you in mind of Japanese internment camps. And it's an end to immigration family detention centers. They literally have family detention centers with little play swings and toys laying around and barbed wire facing in and guards with guns around. It's just outrageous. And an end to that is just absolutely necessary. I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, they have to find some alternatives to detention for these families. It just, it doesn't make any sense to continue treating people with a lack of dignity and respect for their humanity and acting as though they're dis dispensable and disposable simply because they are trying to build a better life um, for themselves and for their children. Um, so I, I, I agree that we need to end 
family detention. I'm glad that the bill is calling for that. Um, they definitely need to address that. Two of those facilities are owned and operated by a private prison company. That goes back to the heart of what we were talking about before, where these private companies are incentivized to um, not only maintain these facilities, but to cut costs as much as possible so that they can make a buck. You know, and we know that human dignity flies out the window when the system of capitalism is first and foremost in the minds of a, of a particular company. One other um, section of the bill that I think is important is Section 5, which is focused on reinstating the federal system. Um, it, it's unclear why they abolished that system in the first place. Now, the federal parole system was abolished in 1984. And if you think about what happened um, in 1984, um, that was actually when one of the major laws surrounding the war on drugs came into play. So in the um, early and mid-1980s is when we had the war on drugs. Um, and thinking about what's happened since the war on drugs began, um, is, is, is really helps us understand how our prison population has grown exponentially. So in 1980, there were half a million people who were incarcerated. The war on drugs started in the mid-1980s, roughly. And then by 1990, that number doubled to a million people incarcerated. By 2000, that number went up to 2 million people incarcerated. So the war on drugs has and mandatory minimums and the sentencing guidelines have helped to fuel our criminal justice system. So just at the time that our prison population was exploding, we decided to do away with one of the tools to help manage the system operated, and that was the federal parole system. So now prisoners are required to serve at least 85% of their sentence, where really we need to be looking at um, each person's circumstances on an individualized level, looking at their level of risk, and deciding who needs to stay in prison and who needs to be released from prison. Instead of making everybody serve 80% of their sentence, which just simply doesn't make any sense. We need more discretion back in the system, and reinstating the federal parole system would do just that. You know, Professor Levy-Pound, I really appreciate you being here today and sharing your analysis on this uh, with us, and I really hope that the public takes this uh, even beyond any kind of prejudices that they may hold for Bernie Sanders or anything like that, because I've heard a lot about you know, people don't want a white Jewish guy, uh, blah, blah, blah. But the problem the problem is we're not interested in Bernie Sanders election. We're interested in this legislation, which abolishes yeah. private prisons. And I'm all about freedom. I could care less about politics, but freedom. Yeah, I'm going with that. So I'm hoping that the public pushes it. I know that the media has been very silent on this historical legislation, which was released on the anniversary of the fugitive slave laws being passed. So uh, I don't understand why the silence is there, but I hope that they no longer are silenced and push this out one way or another. Maybe they're trying to protect uh, another candidate by not putting this out. I don't know, but this is far more important than petty differences or uh, anything like that. Would you agree? I would agree wholeheartedly, and I'm glad that uh, Bernie Sanders has exhibited courage because he's fighting against very powerful people 
people who have strong interest in, in what's happening in Washington, D.C., some of whom may have legislators and other politicians in their back pockets through uh, campaigns, uh, finance contributions and things like that. So he's going up against some very powerful forces by even um, pushing for this legislation. And he's also going up against folks in government who want to maintain the status quo, who are comfortable with the federal government abdicating its responsibility onto these private companies, who we know have a profit motive for keeping these systems in place. Um, beyond that, I would like to see Hillary Clinton step up to the plate and undo some of the harm that happened during uh, Bill Clinton's administration. Um, he had a chance to reduce the crack versus powder cocaine ratio, um, which was 100 to 1. So basically someone caught with uh, 5 grams of crack cocaine had a five-year mandatory minimum prison term versus someone caught with 500 grams of powder cocaine would get the five, the same five-year mandatory minimum prison term. We know that whites were more associated with trafficking powder. Blacks were more associated with trafficking cracks. Um, and there's an economic difference between the two. But 500 grams of powder is worth exponentially more than a, basically a crack rock, a teaspoon of crack cocaine. Dr. So there, there was racism built into that system. And without powder cocaine, you would never get crack cocaine. So it's unclear of why they would treat the uh, base of a drug less harshly than a byproduct like crack cocaine. So during Clinton's, Bill Clinton's administration, he had the chance to reduce that disparity, and he refused to do it. And now, as a result of that, we still have tens of thousands of African-Americans and other people of color who are behind bars under those unfair laws. Now, the laws changed some in, in uh, 2010 with the Fair Sentencing Act under the Obama administration, which reduced the disparity from 100 to 1 down to 18 to 1. But I think that the, it's the, the ratio should be 1 to 1 in terms of how crack and powder are treated within the system. And Hillary Clinton, I would argue, needs to champion she can do more for criminal justice reform, for abolishing aspects of the system that are causing harm, and remedying the wrongs that happened during her husband's administration if she were to be elected. Uh, I think um, I'm for, I agree with law enforcement against prohibition, which is headed by Neil Franklin. I think you need to abolish the drug war. Um, as we've seen in these states that have legalized cannabis, you know, even Oregon, which is a primarily white state now, is expunging the records of all those people who have been uh, unjustly arrested for a plant. Uh, but getting back to to the bill and um, <clears throat> excuse me, the Justice is Not for Sale Act uh, 2014. Um, Hillary Clinton, not only, you know, and I agree with what you said, um, not only was it her husband's legislation, but she was a champion for that legislation. So it's not like she was the type of first lady who sat on the sidelines and, you know, uh, um, was more like a Michelle Obama, first lady Michelle Obama, who gets herself involved in like healthy eating and, and exercising, you know, and, and, and veterans issues. No, Hillary Clinton was out there lobbying. Uh, for the uh, um, tough on crime bills, as they called them back then, but even more so, bring you know, bringing it to the present. Uh, Hillary Clinton needs to give an account 
for the two pri at least two private prison um lobbyist individuals that work one works for the geo group the other one for the correction corporation of america and they uh, are cash bundlers you know that i guess they are the ones that help hold like little dinner parties and get these people to pledge you know the george zolis and others and they and they create this pool of cash that they then you know donate um and whatnot and so she has two people like that on her campaign so obviously uh she doesn't want to be questioned on the justice is not for sale act considering that she has uh those type of people uh working for uh, i don't know if they're working independently and they're just the clinton campaign is accepting the money or if you know they are directly working for the clinton campaign i can't say that but i think she needs to give an account for it and um instead of you know they're asking not to say that her email uh security questions aren't important but we've had months and months and months of that and let's bring it to something relevant here's again as max says a, a historic introduction of some legislation she has been talking about some so-called reform why hasn't she been asked those questions you know and, and then would they follow up and ask her to give an account for the private prison lobbyists raising money for Absolutely. That needs to happen. Those are questions that we need to put on the table and we need to be relentless in asking those questions until we get answers. And I'm really impressed. I, I know they got a lot of uh, backlash, but some of the young people through Black Lives Matter that's been trying to hold these political leaders and those running for the office of president accountable for answering some of these questions about police accountability and the criminal justice system. If they don't show up, and disrupt the status quo, then we're going to continue to get what we've always had, which we know is inadequate and um, is detrimental to our people. So I'm proud of these young folks for standing up and speaking truth to power and calling the question. Yeah, you're making me smile just thinking about those young folks that are doing that, you know. And also with regarding uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, both of them's hands are dirty. And uh, I made it my business to speak with the campaign manager for Bernie Sanders and his team in regards to how dirty their personal hands are with Vermont having a 13 to 1 arrest ratio, black versus white, in that little bitty state where 1.2 percent of the population is African-American and over uh, 90, I believe it's 95.8 percent is uh, white. But there's 13 to 1 in the prisons. And they're involved in human trafficking where Vermont is sending their prisoners out of state to other places like Kentucky. So we made sure that they understood that, you know, you are not angels and you need to look at your own home while you're doing this. So uh, but on the other hand, Hillary is her hands is quite a bit more dirty, <laughs> quite a bit more considering the things they're more filthy. <laughs> yeah. We have about five minutes left in this interview, uh, and I would love to just get any thoughts that you want to share with our listening audience and maybe some ways that they might be able to help you in your efforts to fight against these atrocities. Sure. So I would just say um, back to what you all were saying earlier in terms of um, looking at uh, the war on drugs. I agree that the war on drugs needs to come to an end because it's been a war on poor black and brown bodies and poor black and brown families. You know that the war on drugs has not been successful. It's been extremely costly. And even to this day, drugs are cheaper, easier to get and more than ever um, since this war has been fought. 
war on drugs has also opened the door to the militarization of our police forces, where we have folks in Congress who have signed on to bills that allow easy transfer of military weapons to local police departments. And we need to address that. I mean, I experienced that uh, when I went to Ferguson, Missouri last November. You know, my first night there, I was a um, I was a legal observer through the National Lawyers Guild. And I talked on this show before about, you know, being tear gas. When I was on here with Brother Kafani, how we got tear gas our first night in Ferguson without warning. Um, and we saw the um, evidence of our police forces being militarized with tanks rolling in the streets with the equipment that they had on their bodies and also the surveillance equipment that they use. Um, and this is part of the larger picture of how our country is operating, where we have citizens who feel like enemies of the state. And um, I think it's unacceptable that we've moved to that level um, of, of how we operate in this country. And we need a radical shift to begin to occur. We need to abolish our, the way that our criminal justice system um, is, is operating, it needs to be abolished. We need to dismantle these structures that are facilitating oppression. And we need to use our voices and speak truth to power. We have to hold our legislators accountable. If you want our vote, then you need to show us that you are going to use your skills, your gifts, your talents, your political cachet to change these systems that are harming our communities. Otherwise, they should not be able, Democrat, Republican, or otherwise, to count on our votes if they're not going to do the right thing. We also need to begin running our own candidates uh, for office. We need to be grooming our young people to, you know, be willing to put themselves out there to run for office, to speak truth to power, to get into those political circles like we've seen with John Lewis who was a, a staple figure during the civil rights movement as a young person and who has now channeled that into a long career in the legislature where he's continuing um, to stand for justice, freedom, and equality. So we need more young people to follow in his footsteps, um, especially our young abolitionists out there who are going to work to dismantle um, this atrocity known as the criminal justice system. So I would love for people to use their voices to get on social media, to continue this conversation about dismantling the system of mass incarceration, and to get in the faces of our political leaders to say that we're tired of you saying you're being tough on crime. We want you to get smart on crime and create jobs and not jails. You know, my sister, I think you would be proud to know uh, that the Charleston chapter of Black Lives Matter has presented several candidates this year for city council and mayor as well. And uh, they have also, along with the Asheville Black Lives Matter chapter, joined in the abolitionist movement as a whole. That is fantastic. Now that puts a smile on my face. Indeed. I thought I would let you know that at the end of the program. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you being here again. We love your work. We're looking forward to hearing more from you. And uh, if anybody wants to find out more about our guest tonight, you can visit uh, her website at NakimaLevyPounds.com and uh, see what she's involved in. If she don't know, nobody knows. <laughs> Thank you again, my sister. And you have a fantastic evening. Thank you for having me. God bless you all. God bless. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Yeah.
are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We just had uh, our interview with our guest, Nakima Levy-Pounds, or not an interview, but where we discussed the Justice is Not for Sale Act, which was presented by Bernie Sanders of uh, Vermont Center and Congressman Raul Grivalva out of uh, Arizona. An incredibly historic document and legislation that we hope to push forward to its conclusion. Sign the petition. Sign the petition we've been circulating. I've been circulating at least two. Uh, one of them had about 64,000 signatures. The one that um, I posted to change.org has got about 600 signatures. It's got a conversion rate of about, I would say, somewhere of 65%. Um, and it just boggles my mind uh, that, you know, a thousand, a thousand or so people could see a petition abolishing supporting legislation like the Justice is Not for Sale Act 2015. And, you know, roughly 600, you know, uh, uh, excuse me, out of a thousand, only 600 of them, you know, you would think that would be unanimous. You know, it would be 99.9% of people who saw this petition would be against uh, private prison slavery and they would do as much as sign uh, their names. But still, uh, I would say a 65% conversion rate is still uh, pretty good. That shows a majority of people who see in the petition. Uh, uh, want to abolish the private prison system and, and their comments that they leave behind and their reasons for signing um, are, are always interesting. One of the recent signatures claims to be a sister, I believe, of Sandra Bland, uh, someone from Illinois. Uh, um, I can't recall her name, um, but you know that's on the petition. She said that her her sister died in a Waller County uh, prison, but I think they meant jail. So yeah, I, I'm I'm just um just want to keep pushing it, man. Keep pushing it. Uh, half of it is education. You know, some people may not sign a petition, but they will. You know, call their uh, um I hate to call them representatives, but your corporate officer. You know that you elected to uh, USA Inc. You want to get them on to uh, pressure them to pass something abolishing uh, private prisons. You can get the petition right off New Abolitionist Radio if you're using the dual experience of tuning in and listening to us and following the live feed on the page as we do the program. The petition is right there, as well as Bernie Sanders' own words of how uh, why this came to be and what it's all about. And also the summation, uh, the summary of the Justice is Not for Sale Act, so you can see it yourself. We need your help, and if you are an abolitionist, then sign this and share it every day. Once a day, at least, so we can get this thing uh, into the Senate next. And I, I'm so happy that uh, Sister Professor Nikima Levy-Pounds was here with us and gave us her professional advice. As I said, she don't know, nobody knows. And we've been trying to tell you, we've got expert witness testimony to show you what's going on and prove it to you. I don't know who needs to tell you. Do Jesus need to come down out of the sky and say, hey, that's wrong. It's slavery. Do you hear the words coming out of my holy mouth? It's slavery. <laughs> and, of course, um, I think she mentioned tonight also the 13th Amendment, that slavery was never 
abolished. So here we got what Minnesota's attorney of the year for what, 2014 or, or 2015, a professor, you know, a, a professor who teaches law. And, you know, she's telling him we've had other professors of law on before um, who have said that, no, slavery was not abolished. It was only amended. And, you right. know, and but to get her breakdown and her, her analysis, you know, as she was sharing the different sections, I think, what, seven or eight sections of, of the bill. And, you know, as she broke down uh, what she felt was the most important ones and what it w could do, possibly do um, right. to affect different areas of this uh, um, 21st century slavery and human trafficking. So and that's again. I, now I heard some um, like one interview I did. And I'm working on getting her back on Angela Chan, the attorney out of uh, San Francisco. And, um, you know, um, she told me, like, you know, we are like ahead of corporate media, what you see on TV, the cable news that us here on the Internet producing programs like New Abolitionist Radio. We are ahead of the information curve. In, in terms of that, but I tend to think more sinister, you know, because this bill has been out, what, two weeks now, week and a half, and they still haven't found time to put together a panel of other legal experts like, you know, uh, Miss Levy Pounds, who has, they have, uh, she has been featured, you know, as an expert on, on corporate media. So why, you know, Angela Chan as well. So why aren't we seeing them? You know, abolitionists, both of them abolitionist attorneys. She pointed, she, you know, made that distinction. I'm an abolitionist attorney. So why aren't those two being invited on some panel, man, to talk about at least 10, 15 minutes? I know they don't get an hour like, you know, we gave, you know, her tonight, but, you know, at least devote 10, 15 minutes. I'm not seeing that. So again, that's why it's important that we got to keep pushing the information, sharing the petition, sharing the podcast you know, sharing her expert analysis on this bill. Yeah, there's certain things you are not allowed to say on any kind of national news network or interviews, those things being private prisons for profit or abolition. Uh, as you've noticed, the president has yet to say those words in a sentence, prison for profit. You have never heard him say it. It's always reform. Um, and those are concepts that you're not supposed to be aware of which killed the fallacy of either or being reform or no reform, when abolition has always been an option that many people have given their lives to bring into existence. Um, is Brother Johanan with us at, at this time? I'm here, fellas. Peace. Peace <laughs> to, the, to the abolitionists. Peace, brother. Uh -huh. Peace. Brother. It's good to have you. Sorry you had some difficulties getting in, man, but I'm glad you're here. Did you hear the interview? I caught the last probably 10, 15 minutes of it. Of course, love to hear our dear sister, and she does go in. Whenever you give her an opportunity to speak on it, she's not going to pull any punches. So she she remains one of my favorite favorite voices other than, than you two fellas speaking on this type of subject because she's going to tell it like it is. Amen to that, man. Telling it like it is a good idea. And that should bring us right into our first story because we're kind of short on time today and we've only got four we want to bring to you, but they're very important stories. The first one is a big eye opener and it's regarding marijuana arrests last year in an article that came out from the Huffington Post. And from what they say, Every 45 seconds last year, someone was arrested for marijuana. 
Every 45 seconds, something that 38% of of Americans admit to doing becomes an insurmountable barrier to future success. Barriers that are not placed randomly, but with intent so that they fall on the heads of the same people in the same places over and over and over again. Every 45 seconds, something that is the butt of jokes among well-fed politicians becomes a life-ending third strike for someone else. In 2014, there were 700,993 arrests for marijuana in the United States. That's one every 45 seconds. That's also 7,000 more than the last year with nearly 90% of those arrests for simple possessions. Now, when we think about that, you know, with states going legal and Colorado making so much money that they're seriously considering giving some of the revenue back to the citizenry, and that there's been an increase in arrests in marijuana, that is just, it's just outrageous. I really don't even know what to say about it. You know what to say about it. It's the, they, they told us a long time ago uh, <clears throat> when they referred to it as a gateway. They say it's a gateway drug. But we thought they meant the gateway to like other drugs that are so-called harder drugs or like a, a life of drug addiction or whatever. They were telling you that it's the gateway to get you in that slavery. Yes, yes. A gateway drug directly into slavery because we've even reported on exonerees. Some of, one of our 21st century riders of the Underground Railroad was a man who had been sentenced to life in prison in Missouri for marijuana. Right. For marijuana. And he was not the only one who has been sentenced to life in prison over marijuana. I know people personally who have spent years in prison because of marijuana laws. And for those that got caught in the third strike, you're out. If you got caught with $5 of weed in a state where marijuana was illegal, that was enough to send you to prison for the rest of your natural life. Crazy. And these were policies put into place by the Clintons, to be honest with you, you know, these three strike laws. So it was crimes against humanity that even former President Clinton had to come out and admit he was wrong about it Uh, in any way, shape or form. That did not help us, but he admitted it. Right. Consider that. (laughs) <laughs> guilt yeah, I heard somebody say that today. Against humanity. Somebody called in to tie your free and friends, and they mentioned Bill Clinton apologized. He was in Philadelphia or something out there, you know, among some black folks and whatnot, and saying, you know, he apologizes. But again, I was like, well, that's all good and fine. He can apologize. Um, but his wife still needs to give an account for why she got these private prison lobbyists raising you know, who knows how many, how much money, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who know, who knows. And again, you know, grant uh, who what this the powerful interest that this legislation is taking on, man. So, you know, Clinton has to uh, give an account for that if she is still being put out there by people as a credible uh, uh, candidate for the nomination for the Democrats. I, I feel like the fix is in, but, you know, that's just me. And if she's not a credible candidate, then pretty much like 95 to, to 98 percent of uh, all black political elected officials right now are not going to have a candidate to endorse uh, because they already, they already did already. endorse her, though, your That's honey. That's what I'm saying. If, yeah. she's not, if she's not a real candidate, then who is all these Negroes getting ready for? Because <laughs> they gave her they support that the first the first time she said she was running. Here we go. 
and completely sold out any kind of political interest of the people that they supposed to be representing. You, me, nobody else in America can go to any of these people and say, this is what we need you to represent for our district, for our vote, to represent us up there. We need you to go to her and say, this is what we demand, or she won't get our vote. Too late! <laughs> they already gave it up. So Yeah, they've already started endorsing her. Hey, you know, I want to read another section of the story from the HuffPost to also reaffirm what was said earlier, is that we're on the cusp of things. And, you know, we were one of the few that brought out the idea, along with uh, the brother Christopher Irvin out of uh, Baltimore, who uh, was lobbying about collateral consequences. Well, here it comes up in the post. It says collateral sanctions, such as barriers to unemployment and housing, loss of benefits, such as food stamps and health care, the involvement of child protective services, and lifetime of character defamation that comes with a criminal history now plague 701 uh, 700,993 more Americans, disproportionately young men of color. In 2016, several more states would decide whether to end marijuana prohibition. Luckily, the lifeboats have come to arrive and rescue those drowning in a sea of mass incarceration, felony exclusions, and collateral consequences. Those in Colorado and Washington were rescued first, followed by Oregon, Alaska, and D.C. Seven more states worth of marijuana consumers, their families, and loved ones stand to be rescued in 2016. Shout out to Amanda Riemann for writing this in the way that she did, because she's saying it with sincerity. These people are being rescued. They're under assault. Entire communities over a freaking plant. Right, right. Well, <clears throat> Scotty commented earlier about uh, 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 Sister Dakima and not, you know, seeing her on the national news. We're talking about abolitionism and talking about the, the, the law the way it is, you know, from the from the, the abolitionist perspective. And the same thing with Angela Chan. These are both people, like you said, that are on uh, national news shows with other topics, so they trusted their opinion in other areas, but when these things come up, they're not brought out. Angela Chan said that on Scotty's uh, interview, that she hadn't been, you know, asked. So when we see these Huff Post stories come up, sometimes, unfortunately, this is the only you know, news source other than the new abolitionist radio sometimes that brings these kind of things out with this kind of a, a perspective, with this kind of a passion behind it also. I mean, so definitely shout out to her for, for putting it in, in the right kind of terms. Indeed. And speaking of Oregon, which was mentioned in there, that's our next story, which just follows right up. You know, on one hand, every 45 seconds in 2014, somebody was being arrested for simple possession. Ridiculous. But at the same time, Oregon is legalizing their marijuana and what they're doing first is expunging marijuana convictions but as I mentioned in the intro it's kind of a tricky story Johanna do you have that story up would you like to cover it or you want to get the next one um I can cover it I, I'll pull it up here all right because I'm on I'm on the uh the planet page so I got all of these these links here with me there <clears throat> we go the drug war crumbling Thanks to the abolitionist movement, I will say. Drug war crumbling. This is from alternet.org. Oregon begins expunging marijuana convictions even as pot arrests rise nationwide. The state is moving dramatically in the opposite direction. It says this week it, it was announced that Oregon will be expunging the old records of marijuana offenders along with their new legalization plan. This measure is the farthest that a state has gone to date in regards to applying the, the new laws to old cases. 
However, for people who remain in jail for having a plant, the legalization plan does not go far enough. According to the New York Times, people who have low-level felony or misdemeanor marijuana charges on their record that are at least 10 years old will be eligible for expungement. While the transition in Oregon is nowhere near what is needed for the hundreds of thousands who are still incarcerated, the aspect that allows for old cases to be expunged is at least a step in the right direction and is helping people clear their records so they can avoid discrimination. Oregon is one of the first states to really grapple with the issue of what do you do with a record of something that used to be a crime and no longer is, says Professor Jenny M. Roberts. Uh, it's certainly true that people who have had prior mar uh, marijuana convictions should not be denied a job or volunteering opportunity because they have a charge on their record, especially after the plant is declared legal. However, if this is the case, then surely people who are currently sitting in jail for doing the same thing should not be forced to continue their sentences for something that they should never have been prosecuted for in the first place. <laughs> Imagine that. Says it's extremely important to point out that as we gain these victories in the drug war, that there are still plenty of people suffering in places, <clears throat> even in places where the laws have become more lax. As we recently reported, a prosecutor in southeastern Washington charged three teenagers with felony offenses for simple marijuana possession. According to the Lewiston Tribune, the children were ages 14, 15, and 17 years old, and they are now facing up to five years in prison for felony possession charges simply for carrying a legal item that they were too young to possess. Well, yeah. one of the statements that was said in there kind of nailed it home. Where he said, however, if this is the case, then surely people who are currently sitting in jail for doing something, the same thing, should not be forced to continue their sentences for something that they should never have been prosecuted for in the first place. Hundreds of thousands, they mentioned, sitting in jail cells, rotting behind marijuana laws when all of these states have legalized and they're still there. It's very much reminiscent of the 100 to ones which came down to 18 to 1. They say it's a step forward, but we're not looking for steps forward. We're looking to get to the end zone to right. finish this. We don't need no more steps forward. We've been stepping forward too damn long. We want to step to the end now, to ending this circumstance of legalized slavery and human trafficking. Well, shout out to Oregon for at least doing something. I guess I got to give them that. And then right. move forward. But again, we want to end. Um, yeah, we do. And something I would add to that, when you see the steps forward, what you're seeing is just really just giving room for the dissenting opinion to continue to criticize the people who are being victimized by, by the old ways. You know, we don't see steps forward that lead to greater unity in the society. I hear people talk about Obama as the worst president because he racially divided this country. Really what happened under Obama's presidency is people starting to wake up thanks to the internet continuing to proliferate, thanks to internet radio, thanks to new abolitionist radio and grassroots efforts of activism, uh, social movements coming out and, and their voices being able to spread through social media. So people are beginning to see a polarization between those who are calling for the steps forward and the end of it, like Max just said, and then seeing the old guard who either benefits from it somehow, whether passively or they go to work every day in it, or they're just racist, or they're just ignorant, or whatever their problem is. But what happens with the steps forward is you continue to have those two groups against each other, and the group 
that is for the old way has something to talk about because it's not over yet. It's just being reformed. It's just being taken steps towards something. So they can still talk all this trash and still have it still build up momentum on their end to keep what's going on going on because they could talk about culture. They could talk about what well, blacks need to stop black on black crime. Blacks need to pull up their pants. The poor people need to do this and that. And da, 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 da. They can say all those things because what we're talking about has not been effectively ended. It's just being reformed. When you end it, there's no more conversation about the victimization that's killing people, the victimization that's destroying the communities, the victimization that's taking fathers out of families, that's taking men out of communities, that's taking more women, more and more women all the time away from their children, that's taking away jobs, that's taking away safety in the community that's supposed to be brought by law enforcement, but instead it brings terrorism and brutality because the system is not abolished. They're just taking steps. Yes, and as Sister Nakima Levy-Pounds pointed out, this is where the greed comes in. This is why it's there, because of this for-profit aspect of it that drives corporate entities to continue as is. They don't want to lose their cash cows. It's really just as simple. We've shown you before how if you release all of these people who are in prisons and jails for marijuana laws, billions of dollars would be taken directly out of prison profiteers' pockets of mm -hmm. annual incarceration rates. Uh, and speaking of the, the deception that's involved in some of this involving prisoners and why they keep them there and the things they do to them while they're there, we have another clip that we want to play, a uh, news clip <clears throat> of a congresswoman who had her, uh, I guess her opponent now, is using gerrymandering and secretly recording, uh, in secret rec recordings where they was talking about how they're moving prisoners around in Florida in order to redistrict and show a larger number of minorities. But the caveat is those minorities are in prisons and can't vote. Um, Scotty, do you have that clip available? Do we have Scotty? I think he said he can pull it up. Oh, there you go. An audio recording of a secret meeting in which Florida State Representative Janet Atkins, a Republican, says the way to, quote, take down Congresswoman Corrine Brown is to redraw her voting district to include prisons filled with non-voting inmates. They're part of the population. Can they vote? No, they can't vote. So when you take a look at, and I don't know what the numbers are, but you take a look at how many minorities are in the prison within that newly drawn, proposed congressional five, how many of them live in the prison, that question around is so against having an east-west because her concern is that they live in prison and they can't vote. Yeah. Atkins made those comments during a closed-door meeting of the North Florida Republican Caucus. She went on to explain why she thinks her plan will work. I understand Corey Brown filed a lawsuit, and what I understand about that is that 
she can't really claim damages until after she does an election and after she loses. And so I think her lawsuit, I think her lawsuit is on ice until, you know, I don't think it's going to happen with her lawsuit until she's actually charged. Now, folks, if you take a look at the current 5th district that Congresswoman Brown represents, you can see that it includes densely populated communities spanning from Jacksonville down to Orlando. Now, if the proposed redistricting happens, the new District 5 would include much of the Florida northern border. The area is filled with a lot of rural regions and 18 prisons. Now, because prisoners cannot vote, the number of eligible black voters would drop 5%. Joining us right now is Congresswoman Corinne Brown. Congresswoman, how you doing? Fine, fine, So fine. you got a bullseye on your back. Absolutely. I knew when they drew it, they, they drew it to get rid of me. I, let me tell you something. I was the first African-American to win in Florida in 129 years. And keeping in mind the area that I represent, the federal courts drew in 1992. And they put communities of interest together. Now, when this map came up, when I saw it, I knew the purpose of the map was to get rid of me. Because 18 prisons, more prisons than any other place in the state of Florida. In addition, if you in, in well, if you're a felon in Florida, you cannot vote. So that's the first thing they pack the district with felons. And secondly, there are people that live in that area that's not in prison, but they haven't gotten their rights restored. So it's another six thousand. So clearly, let's keep in mind the purpose was to destroy the fifth congressional district. I was talking to Martin Luther King III, and he says, how come they keep attacking this district? Florida has 27 districts. This one has been in court all of the time, all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Why is it the, the people that need African-Americans need the representation? When you look at Sanford, Florida, Sanford is where... Uh, Trevor and Martin was killed, mm -hmm. but Jackie Robinson couldn't live in Sanford. And in fact, 60 Minutes did a special. Jackie Robinson, when he played with the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, that's right. That's where they had training camp. Uh, and so uh, he could not live with the rest of the Yeah, you, you heard it right there in the secret recording with how they're redistricting in order to have minorities represented who cannot vote. And we talked to you about Florida, how bad it is where human rights uh, organization is right now holding hearings uh, with victims of police brutality, discrimination, and racism so they can present a case as well in Florida. And uh, Florida is a place where they have that website for the prisons where prisoners have been um, suspiciously killed or died in, at the hands of uh, prison guards. Florida is a big problem, another state that we should be considering bringing in the National Guard for. <laughs> well, it's a state where um, it was nearly fully privatized. The prison system was nearly fully privatized uh, a few years back. I think it was Charlie Chris was the governor at the time, or it might have been Jeb. But at any rate, yeah, they, they almost pulled off a total privatization of all of the Florida Department of Corrections. And it may still be a factor in why the Department of Corrections continues to be so corrupt because, you know, that's one of the big selling points for the private prisons is to talk about how, you know, they can do things so much better and, and get everything in line that's out of control. But if it wasn't for the police um, unions 
which represent the, the state employee, mm-hmm. you know, prison guards, it would have become a completely privatized state. But it's because the cops didn't want to lose their jobs. So the police unions stood up and fought and stopped it from being privatized. But you heard in that uh, video, this woman said that she couldn't even sue, that the black woman couldn't even sue, the uh, representative could not even sue until she lost the race. So it's like a foolproof plan. Like, she can't even sue us about what we're doing to screw her out of this job until she loses. That's when she will be wronged. And then she'll have a legal, she'll have a chance to, to go to court. And, you know, she said, Congresswoman Kareem Brown, that she's the first black congressman in 129 years in that district. And later on in the interview, you can find it on New Abolitionist Radio, she points out how she went to Jeb Bush and said to him, look, this is like a war zone, this district that here. They have nothing and we need some help. And instead, they ended up giving, I believe it was over a billion dollars to another community which was only a mile from theirs a mile from theirs and the community she was representing i believe got a water fountain uh, as a part of their budget there you go well listening to new abolitionist radio and we're here to tell you the truth about modern day slavery and human trafficking right here on the blacktalkradionetwork.com we'll be right back after these messages This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, we're running short on time. We want to stay on time because we have other shows coming up after this. And uh, in so saying, please check out New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook and check out the rest of that secret recording. It's very important and it is should be considered as admission of guilt for future crimes against humanity. So make sure you take a look at that. We want to get into something else now, which we do every week, and it's called the America is Ferguson series. And it began based on the state we're going to be discussing today, the Department of uh, Justice report that showed that Missouri, and in particular Ferguson, and the nearby counties were actively involved in constitutional violations, illegal acts, unlawful acts, policing for profit, jails for profit, courts for profit, tickets for profit throughout this community. And uh, today we want to show you that Missouri is Ferguson. It's a whole lot more than just the city. The whole state is represented by this. So let's get right into it, okay? First of all, Missouri was proven guilty of unconstitutional and unlawful violations of citizens' rights. So make sure you check out the Department of Justice's report. Uh, People, quick facts. Population, 2014 estimate, 6,063,589. So slightly over 6 million people as of 2014. Of those 6 million people in Missouri, 83.5% of them are white alone. 11.8% are black or African-American alone, and 
0.5% are American Indian and 4% are Hispanic or Latino. So we got 11.8, let's say 12% black and 84% white. Business quick facts. As of 2007, there were a half a million businesses. Of those businesses, 4.9%, let's just say 5% were black owned. 0.6% were American Indian owned. And 1.2% were Hispanic or Latino owned. And as we've seen in every single state so far, women own 26.1% of the businesses as of 2007 in Missouri. Facts and figures regarding the Department of Justice in Missouri. The jail system. Missouri has 115 counties. According to the latest jail census taken in 2006, man, every time I say that, I feel like y'all should be ashamed of yourself if that's the last thing you know. According to the latest jail census taken in 2006, there are 122 jail facilities and 9,730 inmates. Missouri has not adopted jail standards. We heard that before. It means that they are not... Uh, responsible to have any kind of measurement of uh, justice. Anyway, the prison system. As of December 31st, 2013, the Missouri prison population was 31,537. The Missouri Department of Corrections operates 21 correctional facilities. The department's total budget for fiscal year 2014 was $677 million a year. The Community Correction System, the Missouri Board of Probation and Parole, an agency within the Department of Corrections, supervise 47,543 probationers and 16,000 parolees at the end of 2013. The daily cost of field supervision was $5.07. The crime rate in Missouri as of 2013 is 17% higher than the national average rate. Property crimes account for 88.88% of the crime rates in Missouri, which is about 16% higher than the national rate. The remaining 12% of violent crimes and are about 24% higher than in other states. And the percentage, according to another report, of incarcerated for violent and sex offenses is 54%. Percentage incarcerated for nonviolent offenses is 46%. As of 2013, Missouri had a rate 32% higher than the national average of incarcerated in prison adults per 100,000. Missouri, as of 2013, had a rate 26% lower than the national average of number of probationers per 100,000. And they had a rate of 56% higher than the national average number of parolees per 100,000. Taxpayers in Missouri paid about 30% lower than the other states per inmate in 2012, which was $22,350 a year versus the national average of $32,000. Now, state rates of incarceration by race and ethnicity as of 2005, prison and jail incarceration rates, population rate of incarceration per 100,000, whites 433, blacks 3,000, 569 Hispanics 846 now remember this is a state that has 80 
what was the percentage of the uh, population of white? 84% uh, white population, 12% black population, but there are 3,569 black people in prisons and jails for every 433 whites. And there are 846 Hispanics for every 433 whites, and Hispanics only make up 4% of the population. Again, these are the trends that we are showing you that are so extreme and so unacceptable. So when you hear national averages, remember that those national averages come into play because of some of these southern states that have these extreme numbers of people in their prisons. Former facilities. Missouri State Penitentiary closed in 2004. Central Missouri Correctional Center closed June 2005. As of 2010, the state did not use private prisons or export prisoners to facilities in other states. The two private prisons in the state, Integrity Correctional Center near Holden, Missouri, and Bridgewell Prison in Bethany, Missouri, both closed in 2010 and had never held Missouri state inmates. Mind you, when I just said had never held Missouri state inmates means that they were a human trafficking hub. Other states were housing their prisoners in Missouri. Um, there's a quick a few paragraphs I'm going to read and then close it up uh, and give you some of the links that we will provide as well. Missouri may not be using private prisons, but they have this in-depth connection with this company called Keefe and its parent uh, company Centric, which are private companies. These companies have a monopoly which exploit prisoners at every turn. Since Keefe and his parent-centric are private companies, it's difficult to gain a clear picture of their finances. The veil was lifted somewhat last year when the Missouri Department of Corrections insisted that Keefe include a variety of financial information as part of its bid. Keefe has six subsidiaries and 17 distribution centers around the country, shipping as much more than 25 million pounds of goods and supplies each month. In 2012, its Keefe Commissary Network, along with two other subsidiaries, recorded a robust 41 million net income on 375 million in sales. They say a relative term. The company has contracts with more than 800 public and private prisons with the bulk of its business in commissaries. In Missouri, for example, Keefe has contracts to provide everything from strawberry Twizzlers and pre-cooked long gravy rice to creamy peanut butter and vanilla iced oatmeal cookies. In recent years, however, the company has increased Increasingly look for new opportunities pushing into financial services, portable music players, and up and next up, tablets. Under its new three-year contract with Missouri Prisons, it handles deposits made to inmates' accounts and runs an email system and relative security. This contract is expected to pay Kiwi somewhere between $8.5 a year, according to the Missouri Office of Administration Evaluations of Bids. Now, I want to give you some of the stories that shows you even more so, because, you know, we're talking the Mike Brown place. So they have uh, stories that I pulled up where they have a sale, for sale a medium security prison in Missouri right now where anybody can buy a prison. Uh, also, we have stories where the Justice Department's report came out and showed these incredible policing for profit schemes. Uh, we have the story of the Missouri Prison Watch, where the only man in Missouri serving a life sentence 
without parole for marijuana came from. Of course, Kajami Powell's ultimate sacrifice was made right there in Missouri. And also Mike Brown, not only last year, but this year, where we had seen very similar reactions using uh, police in riot gear and army gear and tanks and cannons and grenade launchers and everything. And don't forget the racist emails that came out from Ferguson that showed the type and depth of racism that they were dealing with this 12% population of the state of Missouri. They called it the perfect storm. And of course, uh, the former, uh, the former uh, attorney general pointed out the nine egregious examples of racism in Ferguson uncovered by the Department of Justice. There have been documentaries have come out. Remember the history of Missouri with the Missouri Compromise, the laws concerning slavery in Missouri. Missourians hated abolitionists, uh, literally hated them and made it illegal to even talk about abolition in the state of Missouri. you can read up that on the abolitionist movement, M-O-N-K-C. And don't forget John Brown's Christmas raid into Missouri in 1858. Uh, we'll provide all of these stories and links to them on our new abolitionist radio website on Facebook. Brothers? Well, well done as always, brother. Just the information is there. So like you said, a lot of this is... Um, is simply just compiling the the information, the indisputable truth and facts about you know the situation that we're facing for when these uh when the when the trials begin, when the when the the, the revolution truly kicks in. I mean, all of the all the evidence is there. So you shouted out uh, Jamie Powell as well as Mike Brown. Obviously, uh, we're also coming up on the anniversary, uh, one year anniversary of the of the murder of uh, Von Derrick Myers. Another young brother that was shot and killed by uh, the St. Louis police. So, you know, I mean, it's on and on and on with the with the murders. Uh, then also, you mentioned uh, Missouri, the state of Missouri itself, being a uh, uh, hard on the abolitionists. I mean, you remember we profiled uh, Reverend Anthony Bewley on this program uh, maybe about a year, year and a half ago. A, a man who was a, a a preacher, a white man who was a preacher who was not necessarily a hardcore abolitionist he just didn't go along with the direction that the church he represented who was saying slavery was going to stay and he was just like well I can't I can't quite endorse slavery he wasn't necessarily saying he was even an abolitionist but just for saying he wasn't going to endorse slavery they ran him out of town he tried to leave and run away with his family and ended up in Missouri trying to hide them uh them slave uh, catchers came up from Texas up to Missouri and chased him down and brought him back to Texas, drug him back to that town, hung him, killed, hung him by the neck till he died, then skinned him, and hung his bones up on top of the on uh next to the drugstore for the children to come and play with his bones, and his bones stayed on on top of the drugstore they said for some years. So, I mean, this is the this is what we're dealing with. I mean. <laughs> We don't. We're not telling you emotional uh, pleas and and crying and moaning and and complaining and saying all kind of fluff. We're telling you the actual facts every week when we speak. This is the facts. Well, there you have it. Today, the uh, originator of this whole series, 
Missouri is Ferguson. I'll try to put as many of the links as I can on New Abolitionist Radio. But again, you know, we're kind of tight on t- time, and I want to make sure we get all our segments in. So what we're going to do next, while I p- will post these links on the page, is Brother Johanan will move into our next segment, which is our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. Do you have that link available, uh, Johanan? I believe I do, sir. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, yeah, so make sure you're experiencing the dual experience. Uh, don't just listen. Follow us on the Facebook page in real time so you can see these things for yourself and make your own uh, educated decisions on what you see. And don't just go by what people tell you. We want you to use critical thinking. Other people just want you to believe what they say. Right. We give you all of the tools you need. And we really are not only educating but creating abolitionists, teach you how to think, how to investigate, you know, how to research and study and how to present these arguments, how to lean back on the facts that's already been put out there, how to dig deeper, how with these segments, like with the uh, Underground Railroad, uh, uh, rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad segment right now, or Max, the segment he just uh, finished with the uh, uh, America's Ferguson, I mean, teach you how to think outside the box and create new platforms to present the same argument, just from a different angle, so... Uh, this week's uh, writer is uh, Reginald Reggie Griffin. He's 53 years old. Uh, this is from the uh, website Prison Legal News. Um, this is from November 8, 2014. So he has not long been uh, uh, one of these one of our uh, writers here. So he was sentenced to death for the July 12, 1983 stabbing of James Balsley in the yard at the Morberly Correctional Center then known as Missouri Training Center for Men. In uh, August 2011, the Missouri Supreme Court vacated Griffin's conviction after finding the state had withheld evidence. Wow, where have we heard that before? Related to another prisoner who was likely involved in the murder. That prisoner, Jeffrey Smith, was found in a sharpened, was found with a sharpened screwdriver while attempting to leave the yard shortly before Bowsley was killed. Smith was convicted of an unlawful use of a weapon. State Supreme Court found that the prosecution had violated its Brady obligations by failing to disclose the information to Griffin, which would have bolstered his alternate perpetrator defense at trial. The 2011 uh, vacator of Griffin's conviction was not the first time that the Missouri Supreme Court had ruled in the case. It had previously vacated Griffin's death sentence after finding the state wrongly relied on the criminal record of another prisoner with the same name as Griffin during the penalty phase of a trial. Griffin then received a life sentence and was removed from death row. Another prisoner, Doyle Franks, was also convicted in connection with Bosley's death. He admitted that he had, been, that he had killed Bosley and Griffin was not at all involved. A second co-defendant acquitted at trial had likewise denied that Griffin was involved. Damn, how many people can you pull out to tell you that the dude didn't do it and they did it? I mean, wow. In 2006, Paul Curtis, a prisoner who testified that he saw Griffin kill Bosley, admitted to state investigators that his testimony was false. He did not see Griffin commit the stabbing, but lied at a trial in exchange for benefits such as a transfer to another prison, money, and a TV set. That's your life. That's what it's worth. A a better view at another prison, a little bit of cash, and and a TV. Remarkably, state prosecutors made no mention of Curtis's recantation during Griffin's habeas corpus proceedings in 2011. When when questioned about that non-disclosure at a November 12 hearing, Assistant Attorney General Stephen Hawke told a judge that since the habeas proceedings were of a civil nature rather than criminal, (laughs) 
<laughs> the rules requiring pretrial disclosure of exculpatory evidence did not apply. Did you hear that? This is the assistant attorney. So for representing the state's cases, this is the assistant who says that a straight up BS lie. I mean, he, he just sat up here and told this to the judge, but that's not criminal. He 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 wasn't lying. He he wasn't uh, mis misrepresenting the truth. He shouldn't be in contempt of court. He's a a uh, what do they call it? An officer of the court. He represents the state, and he goes in front of the judge and says that since the habeas proceedings were of a civil nature rather than criminal, the rules requiring the pretrial disclosure of exculpatory evidence did not apply. He said that the state was under no obligation to disclose the evidence when the evidence is a man saying that he lied to testify. To get another man convicted of, although the state initially indicated it would retry Griffin for Bosley's murder, the charges were dropped in October 2013 after prosecutors indicated that they did not have sufficient evidence to convict him. Griffin had previously been released from prison on bond pending the state's decision to retry him. 30 years of life, essentially stolen by a shoddy investigation and prosecution, cannot be returned to Reggie, said Rita Linhart, with Missourians for alternatives to the death penalty. Restitution is in order. At least he is alive, and now he is finally, truly free. So, we say salute to you, Brother Reggie. You made it out, Reginald Reggie Griffin. Salute, Brother, salute. Oh, man. This show takes so much out of a person sometimes, you know, just understanding what's happening and what we're dealing with. And I think it makes it even worse when you face the ignorance that you see out in the public like I had to deal with in at the PBS interview, uh, you know, and, and to see that there's people orchestrating a counter narrative on purpose. Like they know what's going on. This is what they want to happen. These are the things that they prefer to occur. They're exercising their authority and benefiting from it, whether it be financially or career wise or through power within uh, politics. This is what they want to happen, and they want it to happen to you. Well, you're here with us at New Abolitionist Radio. We've got about 10 minutes left. We've got one more segment to do, and uh, I had to put this one together from scratch, literally, because it's a, it's a, a story that uh, I couldn't find any um, information on this abolitionist. Just give me a second to, to pull it up here. Uh, here we go. All right. Scotty Reed, if you're ready. This week's abolitionist profile is the Reverend Frederick Starr, Jr., 1826 to 1867. Frederick Starr, Jr. was born in New York. His father was a piano manufacturer and sales business in Rochester. Frederick was a Yale graduate and attended Auburn Seminary, where he met Mary Helen, the daughter of an Auburn professor. They moved to Western Missouri, where Frederick was active in community activities as well as religious affairs. He was a colonizationist, free soiler, member of the Leatherworth Association, and a Presbyterian minister. Labeled an abolitionist, he argued his position before the Platt County Self-Defense Association, but was removed from his post in 1855 and forced to flee Weston. He held pastorates in Pennsylvania and the North Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Between pastorates, he made his home in Canada, Connecticut, and was financially uh, was financial agent for Auburn Seminary. 
He died in St. Louis in 1867 and was buried in Auburn, New York. The stars had three children, Nell and Harry, born in Weston, and Lucy. The Kansas-Missouri borders trouble in 1854-1855 constitute one of the most interesting, if most confusing, phases of Missouri's pre-Civil War history. The political supremacy of the pro-slavery elements in western Missouri in the early stages of this conflict is an undisputed fact. Recent Missouri historians have told the story of this post-slavery power and its manifestations in the Kansas elections. The untold story is that of the less powerful abolitionist opposition in western Missouri. Frederick Starr's ventures in Weston from 1850 to 1855 unfold part of that story. On March 19, 1855, Frederick Starr writes from Weston, Missouri to his father. Starr transcribes a recent article from the local newspaper, Liberty Platform, in which he is accused of being a political priest in charge of a gang of abolitionists. Starr believes the article makes unjust and false statements about him, but admits it may be the impression which was fixed itself upon the minds of the fire-eating part of the community. If so, I would not have it otherwise. The article also describes the nomination of General Whitfield as the Kansas Territory Delegate to Congress. Starr's story is also interesting because it, uh, it is another example of the measures pro-slavery forces used to suppress abolition by suppressing freedom of speech in the press. Starr was put on trial, not by a lawful court, but by a private organization. Although he never preached abolition from his pulpit, he was charged with having taught a school for Negroes. He had advised two slave owners to free their slaves. He had ridden in the buggy with a Negro wench. And although Starr was exonerated at his trial, he later left the state, according to Biberman. The circumstances surrounding Starr's departure from Weston are not entirely clear. He either was ordered to leave or he was forcibly placed on a steamboat in St. Louis as a prisoner and deported. And we salute you here at New Abolitionists today. The Reverend Ludwig Starr Jr. Salute! Man, they hated abolitionists in Missouri, boy. I'm trying to tell you, and they still do. I want to give them more reasons to hate abolitionists in Missouri. Well, we're coming to the end of our program, and we'd like to close this up with our final statements for the evening. Which one of you brothers would like to start? I'll go um, first right quick. I just want to thank uh, Professor Nakima Levy-Pounds for coming on and uh, giving her expert analysis of the legislation legislative bill known as justice is not for sale act um because i've yet to hear any attorney um not even really on alternative media or writing articles for the huffington post or or anything she is the first one you know who is a law professor um you know activist um activists and so you know she's the first one i've really heard give an in-depth breakdown and an opinion on the legislation so i appreciate that and um so we hope to reach out to more you know people in that area people activity area number uh six politics and uh get their analysis of this bill indeed thank you scotty i don't have much just tell folks uh, remind folks um to find us and follow us on the different uh, social media channels. We're obviously on the Facebook page, New Abolitionist Radio, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking uh, 
Facebook group. Uh, the YouTube channel is New Abolitionist Radio. The Twitter page is New Abolitionist Radio, N-A-R, which are the initials of New Abolitionist Radio, N-A-R, End Slavery. Uh, so, you know, definitely find us. Uh, uh, Max, what's the North Star website also? Yes, thenewwordorder.com is the North Star website with all of our information compiled into one location for your easy access. So find us. You know, we're out here. It's, it's, uh, the Black Talk Radio Network, uh, obviously is the, is, is the home of all of this, uh, part of the Black Talk Media Project. Remind people that we still have the fundraiser going on. Um, you have every opportunity for the entire year to commit to a, a monthly uh, donation, a, pro, a program you put yourself on where you, you send five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars to the network to make sure we can stay on the air. Uh, give a give a one time gift or you know whatever you can do to contribute to keeping this news coming out. We have not been proven wrong. We've not been proven a lie. We're not being proven some kind of way off base or or out of line some kind of way. We're giving you the truth every single week, and this takes all of us, you know, working together, and that includes you out there who got a few pennies to put together and put in the pot. So uh, help us out. See you next week. Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Word. I'd like to uh, echo the sentiments of my co-hosts, particularly about our guest tonight. Thank you so much, Sister Nakima Levy-Pound. Yeah, shout out, shout out, Sister Nakima. I'm sorry, I, I wasn't a part of the interview. I was late for the interview. But yeah, shout out to you, Sister. Peace to you. I'd like to also give a big thank you to uh, Dr. Faison, who uh, helped to arrange for me to feature at the Mosier Festival this year, the 32nd Annual Mosier Festival in Charleston, South Carolina, where uh, I mixed our abolitionism with our spoken word, my wife and I featuring there, and we educated the citizens of Charleston about certain amendments that have been violated. So thank you, Dr. Faison. I want to end it with this statement regarding those amendments. If you have sworn to defend and protect the Constitution of the USA, I'd like to point something out. You have freaking failed miserably. The Constitution has been and is being violated every day, all day. Now take your right hand to God swearing ass somewhere quiet, sit down, and read the document you swore an oath to defend. I'd suggest you start with these. The Sixth Amendment, the Seventh Amendment, the Thirteenth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Fifteenth Amendment. If you can't see the violations all around you, then you are aiding and abetting the domestic enemies spoken of during your swearing in. There is a word for people like that, and it ain't just oath breakers. And us that know that word remember something else, that abolition is a reason for a revolution, so we can finally know peace. Peace. I started in slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflected for 200 years ships sailed carrying farther slaves. Man, man, be non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums! Good to the woods, so the people can get some of that reaction to the fact that I 